All right, so, so we are in the final week of a four-week series uh, that we have titled Seeing Faith. And really, the, the question we've been asking over these last four weeks is, what does it look like to have the sort of faith that the world can actually see? Uh, what does it look like to live our lives in such a way that those around us, either they can look at us, they can see the way we live our lives, and they can actually tell there's something different in us because of the hope we have? Uh, and look, tonight it's going to be a little bit heavy. We're going to finish in a, in a different sort of space. Uh, we're actually going to talk about suffering and hardship and pain, because that is a real thing that, that we really have to walk through as Christians. And um, if we if done in the right way, it is something that sets us apart and makes us different from the world around us. Uh, but, but look, just making sure we're all on the same page, and I'm, I'm preaching to the right sort of audience, can I just get a show of hands? Uh, who has ever experienced pain or suffering in their walk with Jesus? Okay, cool. I'm preaching to, oh, that was, that's most of you. I was going to make a joke about it. I'm only preaching to a third of the audience, but it, it looks like we've all put our hands up there. Uh, we all walk through pain, right? Uh, and as a Christian, pain sort of poses an interesting problem. Uh, because I think that the headspace we fall into by default is that, you know, the moment we give our lives to Jesus, everything should sort of just go up and to the right. You know what I mean? Uh, we feel like our problems should get easier for us to handle, uh, things should be simpler, that we should just walk in, in blessing and joy and peace and, and all the good things that God has for us. Uh, that, that we love to, to grab a hold of promises like Jeremiah 29:11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and, and uh, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Uh, we, we love Psalms like Psalms 23. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. <laughs> Amen, 100%. And we love those verses and we, um, we have them printed on our walls. They're on our coffee mugs. Uh, if you're of the right age, they're, they're stitched into your tea cozies. That We just love those verses. And, and again, those are all true. They are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Uh, the only problem is that when it comes to the Bible, the Bible is also really unapologetic about the fact that in this life, there's going to be hard seasons. In this life, there's going to be trials. In this life, there's actually going to be pain. I mean, you know what, you know what verses we don't have stitched into our tea cozies? Uh, verses like John 16.33, in this world, you will have tribulation. Not you might, not you could. In this world, you will have tribulation. Uh, or 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Not, not quite as catchy, right? Uh, prob probably wouldn't sell too well in, in Kuronga on any cups. See, signing up for the Christian walk, it, it actually means signing up for some difficult seasons in our life. It means signing up for uh, long nights of the soul and, and hard and difficult days. And see, what I think we, we have a tendency to do is we go, yep, that's in the Bible, and we, we mentally ascend to that, and then we get on with our lives, and often we're surprised when things actually go that way. Um, that, that, you know, when our marriage begins to face strain, or when our kids leave the faith, when we lose our jobs, when we have that medical emergency, we, we turn to God and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not forgetting that, the, uh, forgetting that God actually promised those things were going to happen. And, and see, how you actually respond to this 
how you respond to that tension of a really good God, but a painful life, it, it will make or break your faith when you actually walk through those difficult seasons. And, and see, if you read through the Bible, what you will see time and time and time again is that the authors of the New Testament, that they've actually thought about this a fair bit. That they've processed through the, the way pain works and how we're supposed to respond to it. And, and the, the place they end up, it, it sort of blows your, your, your mind as to how they think about difficulties. Uh, 1 Peter 4.13, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Romans 5.3, we rejoice in our suffering because we know that our suffering produces endurance. Uh, James 1.2-4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So not some kinds, not when you just have a difficulty in your life. Uh, consider it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Uh, or how about this, Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh, for I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the church. Honestly, I don't even know what it means to be filling yourself up with what is lacking in what Christ suffered, but it doesn't sound really good. That time and time again, the New Testament authors, they look at pain, they look at suffering, and it's like they're just going, bring it on. Count it joy, rejoice in it. So look, that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about pain. I want to talk about hardship and suffering. But more importantly, I want to show you guys what the purpose of that pain is. I want to show you how God is working through those messy situations. And I hopefully want to bring you to a point where you can start to, to look at the pain in your life. And it's, it's, if it's running towards you, you wouldn't run away from it, but you would turn towards it and you would rejoice. So does that sound okay tonight, Kemal? Awesome. Uh, so if you've got your Bible with you, we're going to be in Acts chapter 14 tonight. Acts chapter 14. Uh, we'll be picking off at verse 19 if you want to start getting there. Uh, but, but just to give a little bit of a context for where we're jumping into things, uh, we're sort of coming in right at the tail end of the very first Christian mission trip. Uh, so Paul and Barnabas, they've been out on the road for probably the last one to two years at this point, uh, sort of traversing all across the Greek landscape. Uh, and it's been a bit of a, a roller coaster of a, a mission trip, to say the least. There's been highs, there's been lows, they've been kicked out of town, they've uh, argued with magicians and, and uh, court officials. It, it's been all over the place. Uh, but, but this last town they find themselves in, the town of Lystra, it takes the cake for the weirdest interaction they have on their entire mission trip. Uh, see, what happened last week, if you weren't here, is uh, Paul and Barnabas, they, they rock up at Lystra, they do their normal thing. Paul starts preaching a message. He's sharing the gospel. Uh, and midway through the sermon, he stops and he sees this paralytic man sitting on a mat by himself. And Paul knows this guy's got enough faith to be healed. And so he says, get up and walk. And the man gets up and walks. And instead of the crowd looking at that miracle and saying, wow, God must be behind all of this. This message probably has some validity to it. The crowd go, ooh, I reckon Paul and Barnabas are gods. That's how this works. Paul and Barnabas, they're Zeus, they're Hermes, and we're going to worship them. And they get the temple of Zeus involved. People start bringing out bulls to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. Uh, it's a mess of a situation. Uh, and so where we're jumping into things, we're probably a day or two after that event. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, they managed to fend off the whole sacrificial system thing going on there. Uh, I imagine 
Things are probably a little bit awkward. I don't know how you move on from people trying to sacrifice bulls to you, but I imagine Paul tried. Uh, but that's the space we're jumping into tonight. All right, so Acts chapter 14, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. All right, so a little bit of a, a turn of pace there. Uh, so, so what's happening here is there was this group of Jews uh, called the, the Judaizers. Uh, and essentially, they were following behind Paul, uh, sort of going to the same cities he was going, visiting the same towns uh, on a little mission trip of their own to try and derail this movement of God. Uh, that Paul would rock up, he, he'd preach a, a, a message of grace, uh, that it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, that uh, Jesus is for everyone, and the crowds would, would flock to him, and they would hear this message, and then uh, this Jewish crowd would come behind him, and they'd go, yeah, that's not exactly how it works. Uh, sure, Jesus may be the Messiah, he may have come to save us, but you still need to follow the Mosaic law. Uh, you still need to get circumcised men, sorry, uh, and, and no bacon for anyone. So, I don't know, it's not a very convincing argument, uh, more laws, circumcision, and no bacon, but somehow that sort of message, it detracts from what Paul is saying, uh, and it pulls people away from the gospel. Uh, and look, can, can we just agree, this is a really fickle crowd, right? Like last week, they were ready to sacrifice bulls and make offerings to Paul and Barnabas. And this week, after only a couple of days, and I imagine only a few conversations, they're ready to stone the man. Uh, and I brought this up last week, but I'll just say it again. Church, what you idolize, when it lets you down, when it fails you, you will demonize it. That the things of this world, they make terrible gods. And so when they inevitably fail to live up to the pedestal we place them on, well, what happens is the same level of um, worship and adoration we hold towards those things, when they let us down, we will begin to demonize and hate them with the same fervor. And essentially, that's what's happening here. They've gone from sacrificing to wanting to stone Paul. Uh, so again, verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowd, they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Uh, so, so just one last thing here, and, and then I'll move on with the story. Uh, what we need to know about Luke, the author of Acts, uh, is he doesn't have a tendency to exaggerate. Uh, so he's a doctor, he's a medical practitioner, so he just states the facts as he sees them, and he doesn't speculate or um, apply his own opinion to things. Uh, so uh, what, what Luke is saying here when uh, he's saying they stoned Paul and they dragged him out of the city and they supposed that he was dead, that's just Luke stating the facts as he sees them. That at least on a superficial level, um, the crowd believes that Paul is dead. Uh, now, what some commentators, so old dead Christians say, uh, is that Paul actually did die here. Uh, that he, he experienced the stoning, and when it says they suppose he was dead, that's because he was actually dead. Um, and if that's how you read these events, then what we're about to experience is a resurrection. Uh, now, a whole bunch of other commentators, so equally dead and equally smart old Christians, uh, they look at these events and say, no, he didn't quite get all the way to death, and this is just a resuscitation that he's about to experience. Uh, but in either situation, uh, what's actually happening here, what we need to understand is that stoning, it's like a real pain point to experience. That um, this isn't the sort of thing you just have happen to you, 
and you dust yourself up, pick yourself up, and just get on with your life. Uh, that the way stoning worked in the first century is uh, they would take the guilty party, they would bring them outside the city walls, and they would find a cliff that's at least twice the height of the person. And the reason it has to be that height is because they would then push the man off the cliff in such a way that he lands head first at the bottom. Now, most of the time, that actually dealt with the issue. Um, justice had been dealt, the, the man has probably died from that. Uh, but in the case that he didn't, uh, what a witness would do is they take a big boulder and they'd throw it off the cliff and it would land on the person. And in, the, in the, the rare case the person survives that, everyone picks up stones and they're chucking it at the man until everyone's happy the job is done. Uh, so as I said, not something you just pick yourself up and just move on with your life. Uh, and, and I say that not to give you a whole bunch of gruesome details for the sake of it, but uh, as I'm about to talk into the purpose of pain, which is sort of the, the purpose of tonight's message, what, what I just need to say first is the fact that there's purpose to your pain doesn't make it any less painful. Uh, it doesn't stop the tears falling down your face. It, it doesn't stop the nights where you're just stuck in your head playing the same events over and over and over again. Uh, it doesn't stop the arguments with your uh, spouse or, or those days you just wish you could lie down and just forget about everything. The, the fact that God is actually wor walk, uh, working through the, the hardships of our life, it doesn't mean our life becomes any less harsh because of it. And, and look, I just want to say that at the get-go of tonight's message, because... Honestly, if you're in a season where things are just hard right now, where, where life is difficult, where you're walking through some real pain, that, that's okay. And it's okay if things don't make sense to you. And it's okay if you've got feelings of confusion or animosity towards God. Like, that is okay. And, and I don't want you to take anything I'm about to say as a word of condemnation over your life. I don't want you to just, I think I'm criticizing you for how you're dealing with your pain. Because I could give you all the, the right theology on how uh, pain is supposed to work in your life. I could give you all the, the verses in the world, and, and it could be right and true and accurate, and it might do nothing at all for your soul. And, and so if that's you tonight, look, I'll, I'll just say that the, the Bible tells us, tells us that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. And if that's all you need to hear tonight, then, then please take a hold of that and as a church, we would love to come alongside you. We would love to support you through that. But you do not have to do the pain of this life alone. But look, with that said, I do want to talk about pain. And the first thing I want to address is, where does our pain actually come from? Where do our trials and suffering, where do they originate? Because in order for us to know how we're supposed to respond to the trials in our life, we need to know where they're coming from. Uh, and even that word, uh, trials, that we have in English, it's actually a bit of a complicated word. Uh, that in Greek, the word sort of has three really um, different meanings that can be attached to it. Uh, so firstly, a trial can be an experiment or a test, uh, sort of in the way that, you know, you would test an hypothesis uh, by doing an experiment. It's a trial, it's a test, that's what the word means. Uh, the second definition of the word uh, is being tempted. So we can go through trials or temptation when the enemy actually tempts us towards something. Uh, and then finally, the word can just mean affliction or pain or hardship. Uh, and, and the reason I think there's those three different words uh, that get attached to this idea of a trial is because the source of our trials are kind of complicated. It's not a simple matter. I mean, sometimes we just suffer because of our own foolishness, right? 
uh, that we haven't sinned, we haven't broken a law of God, we've just made a stupid decision or done a wrong thing. And, and because of that, we sort of suffer the, the natural consequences of those choices. Uh, sometimes we do suffer be, because we have sinned. Uh, that The Bible says don't do this, and we just go ahead and we do it anyway. Uh, it says don't lie, and we lie, don't steal, and we steal. And uh, we, we do face consequences in this life for the, our sinful actions. Uh, sometimes we suffer because other people have sinned. So we haven't done anything wrong at all, but, but other people, they come into our lives and they, uh, they do something that is sinful and we face consequences and we suffer because of that. Uh, maybe someone lied about you behind your back and, and now you're dealing with the, the ramifications of that or uh, someone said, till death do we part and uh, you meant it, but clearly they didn't and, and now you're walking through the pain of that. Uh, or, or maybe someone's just outright trying to cause harm to your life. And you're suffering because of it. I mean, that's what's happening here, right? Paul has done nothing wrong. He's preaching the gospel. He's doing God's work. And yet, because of the actions of this crowd, he is suffering immensely. And then sometimes we suffer because the world is broken. That we live in a fallen creation. And because of the presence of sin in this world, everything from the micro all the way through to the macro, it is just stuffed up and broken. And so now we have things like cancer and heart attack and uh, global pandemics and famines and earthquakes and tsunamis, and people suffer immensely because of that. And then finally, we suffer because we have an enemy. Uh, that John 10.10 10 says, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. Uh, so if you feel like you're living this life and someone's trying to kill your marriage, or steal your children's innocence, or um, destroy your faith, then I'm telling you, we have an enemy, and often we suffer because of that. And, and see, the, the thing is, and, and honestly, this is one of the most difficult things to grapple with as a Christian. Whatever the source of our suffering is, God, in some sense, has to allow it to happen in our lives in order for us to walk through it. That when we sign up to be a Christian, we, we sort of sign up to suffering in a way the rest of the world doesn't. Uh, because where the rest of the world, they just have to experience the brokenness of this world. Sometimes when we suffer, what happens is our good, loving, perfect, merciful, graceful, uh, just heavenly father looks at us and says, my child, I'm going to let you walk through something difficult right now. Because I know what's going to happen on the other side of it. And again, that's, it's difficult. And if, if you're walking through pain right now, don't take this as, as God has abandoned you. I'm not saying God has caused your problems. I'm not saying God is afflicting you, but at the very least, it, it passes through his sovereign fingers. And the Bible tells us he's working all things for the good of those who love him and call, are called according to his purposes, but he allows it in our lives. Uh, that, that Hebrews 12 verses 7 to 11 says, endure hardship as discipline. And when you hear discipline, please don't think punishment. That's not what the word means. Uh, the word literally, it's where we get disciple from. Uh, so it means to train someone up, to educate someone, to bring someone to a point where they can reach full development or maturity. Uh, so endure hardship as discipline. For God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? 
If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. And then he goes on in verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. In other words, church, if you're walking through the hardships of this life, it's because, again, your, your loving Heavenly Father is, is choosing to train you through those that you might reach full maturity. In fact, in the book of Job, the, the devil literally has to come into the throne room of heaven, fall at the throne of Jesus, and, and, and on his knees ask God's permission to cause Job suffering in his life. And, and God allows it. And what God does is he puts boundaries and restrictions and limits on, on how far the devil can go and what the devil's allowed to do, but, but God allows that into Job's life. In fact, sometimes God is so keen to see transformation in our lives that he leads us into those seasons. Um, in the book of Matthew, we get this description of Jesus' baptism, and it's like this, this epic moment, Right? Uh, the, the heavens open up, the, the spirit falls on Jesus like a dove, the, the voice of the father booms out aloud for people to hear, this is my son, my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And in the very next verse, we're told the spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Church, just let your theology deal with that one. That God the Father sends the Holy Spirit to lead Jesus Christ into a place of wilderness and harshness and, and, and distance from God so that he might be tempted by the devil. <clears throat> that, that church, being a Christian means we follow in Jesus' footsteps. It means we, we do what he did. We, we live the, the sort of lives that, that he lived. And ultimately we get transformed, we get molded into the image of Christ. And that sounds amazing and wonderful and beautiful until you realize the sort of life Jesus lived. He was rejected, he was spat upon, he was mocked, he was beaten, and ultimately he went to the cross. That, that following Jesus sounds really good until you realize you've got to follow him all the way to Calvary. That in this life, if we're choosing to follow Jesus, if we call ourselves Christians, then we are promised pain. And, and that's what's happening here to Paul. And so verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him. Okay, so in other words, Paul gets stoned. Uh, he, he goes through this immense pain in his life. He, he suffers tremendously. And the very first people to meet him in his pain, it's his brothers and sisters in Christ. For lack of a better word, it's his small group, right? Uh, that, again, you don't actually want to do this life alone, church. Because you will take hits. The world will beat you down. And when that happens, not if it happens, but when it happens, you need people in your court who are fighting for you. You need people that you can go to and, and you can ask them to be praying for you and, and you know they'll actually do it. That they won't just say yes and then forget about it. Uh, you, you need people in your life that, that you can go to and say, hey, I'm struggling with my marriage. Or, or there's pain that I'm experiencing because of my kids, or, or, or things are just hard right now. And, and you know, those people are going to turn to you and you say, what can I do about it? And, and they'll give you advice and you'll listen to it because you formed a relationship with them. Church, honestly, sometimes you just need people in your life that you, you can go through pain and they can just be there. 
And they might not say anything at all, but they'll just walk with you through that season. And so look, if I can just, honest, just stop and just speak to the, the, the men of this room for five seconds. Can I say, we're the worst at this. Because somewhere along the line, we bought the lie that we are failing as men if we, we let other people know we're suffering. But can I just say that the world would be full of better husbands, better fathers, and better men if every now and then we just let those walls down and we turn to people and say, hey, I'm actually struggling right now. Hey, things are, are not okay and I'm hurting. See, church, you, you don't want to do this life alone. And, and can I just say something it's a little bit weird for me to say, I don't care what small group you go to. I don't care if you go to a small group that's attached to this church or if there are people that aren't part of this church that go to your small group or whatever it looks like, but you need people in your life. And if you're in a place right now where you don't have that group of people around you who can, can meet you in your pain, then please grab a hold of me at the end of the service or, or grab a hold of one of the Connect team and, and just let us help you connect into the body of Christ because church, you do not want to do this life alone. All right, so verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. All right, so you got to remember, Paul is not looking good at this point, right? He's just experienced the stoning. He's, he's beaten. He's bloody. He's in no condition to go anywhere at all, let alone back into the very city that just stoned him. And yet Paul gets up and that's exactly what he does. And see, what I think is happening here is Paul has a grasp of this biblical principle that if you can actually take a hold of it, it will fundamentally shift your approach to pain in this life. And this is it. The amount of suffering you are willing and able to endure is directly proportionate to how effectively you can be used in the kingdom of God. And I'll say that again because I know that that sounds really weird and it sounds, it clashes with sort of our, our Western mindset to how we think about things. But the amount of suffering you're willing and able to endure is directly proportionate to how effectively you can be used in the kingdom of God. Um, okay, I'll give you a verse to explain what that means. Romans 8, 16 to 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So in other words, if you're a Christian, the moment you give your, your life to Jesus, the moment you surrender to his lordship in your life, you become a son of God. You get brought into the family, you're, give, you're made a co-heir, you're given authority and responsibility. All of that is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. But verse 17 doesn't stop there. It goes on, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So again, if you call yourself a Christian, you're brought into the family, you're made a co-heir, yes and amen to that, but your ability to effectively function in that role is conditional upon your suffering with Christ. Uh, so, so let me just explain what that means. Uh, A.W. Tozer says, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Uh, Alan Redpath says, when God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and he crushes him. And Chuck Swindoll adds to that, so leave room for the crushing. In every great work of God, brokenness and failure are necessary. 
See, church, God would love you enough that he would discipline you, that he would train you, that that he would uh, prune you, that through the trials of this life, he would chisel away everything in you that does not look like Jesus. And, And I don't know about you, but what I found in my life is that when I'm walking through the blessing, it's really easy to rest back in my laurels and say, nah, God, I've got this. And I sort of close my ears up to what Jesus is saying in my life and I just do things on my own strength. But church, in the crushing, my ears are all open. That it is through the pain of, the li- of this life that God prepares us and grows us into the sort of people he has called us to be. And look, honestly, if you don't believe me, then just look at every single person in the Bible that God does extraordinary things through. Um, Joseph, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Uh, he was falsely accused of rape. He was imprisoned for it. He spent the best years of his life languishing in a prison, alone and forgotten. And then only towards the end of his life, when, when all he has left is just this, this, this heart that clings on to God, it is that moment when God puts him in charge of all of Egypt. Uh, Moses, so when Moses is born, his parents have to put him in like a picnic basket and chuck it into the river Nile because people are trying to kill him. Um, and, and then eventually he grows up in, in Pharaoh's house and he becomes uh, a, a murderer. He murders an um, uh, Egyptian um, soldier and he flees into the wilderness. And then he spends the next 40 years, 40 years of his life living as a no-name shepherd away from what God has called him to. Until eventually, at the end of that period, God uh, says, no, now you are going to lead the Israelites. Uh, King David. King David was the forgotten seventh son of a man who valued him so little that when the prophet Samuel comes around looking for the next king of Israel, David's dad leaves him in the fields. Uh, eventually, David finds his way into uh, the courtroom of Saul, and Saul just starts throwing spears at him, like on multiple occasions. Uh, and eventually, it gets so bad that David is forced to flee, and David spends the next 15 years of his life living in the wilderness, hiding in caves, uh, again, seemingly like, like he's been forgotten by, by the world and, and by God, until at the end of that, God raises him up and says, David, now you're ready to be king. Uh, Jeremiah was rejected and opposed as a prophet. Uh, He endured imprisonment and isolation, and he watched his city, Jerusalem, burn to the ground while all of God's people were taken into exile in Babylon. Uh, Esther was an orphan. Ruth lost her husband. Uh, Jesus, uh, even forgetting the cross, right? Jesus lived a life where part of his experience involved spending 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by God. Uh, He was rejected by pretty much everyone, including his hometown, uh, who wouldn't even acknowledge his title as um, prophet, let alone son of God. Uh, he was lied, upon, spat on, uh, lied about, spat upon, falsely arrested. He suffered so much that the night before his crucifixion, he, he was so anxious, so stressed about life that his, capillary, his capillaries in his skin broke and he, he sweated drops of blood. And then ultimately, Jesus died the most uh, humiliating, painful, and, and just excruciating death the world has ever known. See, church, do you know there, there are tasks 
there are plans, that there are uh, missions and purposes in the kingdom of God that God has prepared in advance for you to do. And he knows they are so far beyond where you are right now that he's got to let you experience through, through suffering and hardship of this life that he might train you up and grow you and disciple you so that you can become the sort of person that can actually do all that God has called you to do. That God has a particular glory in mind for you. And in order for you to reach that point, you have to go through the exact pain you are experiencing in this life right now. That before God is ready to do a work through you, he wants to do a work in you. And more often than not, that involves suffering in life to prepare you for that. I mean, church, have you ever actually seen someone make a pot out of clay? Right? Uh, So, and I don't just mean like, at kindergarten, like a proper crafts and making a pot. Uh, what they'll do before they begin shaping the clay into whatever shape they want, that they will, they will beat the living daylight out of their block of clay. Like seriously, if you actually watch like a, a proper person do this, they, they just go ham at the thing. They're tossing it down, they're, they're punching it, they're, they're throwing it against the wall. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to get all the air bubbles and the imperfections out of that block of clay. And, and see, that the thing is, you can make like a beautiful pot or a beautiful vase without going through that process. And it'll look amazing until you put it through the kiln. And then what happens is because there's air bubbles, because there's imperfections in that block of clay, it will shatter into a million pieces when it goes through the fire. But, it, but if you take that same block of clay and you beat it and you put it under immense, immense pressure and suffering, and then you form it into the pot or the object that you're trying to create, well, what will happen is that pot will endure the fire of the furnace in a way that the untested clay never could. The church, ultimately, there is no refinement without the fire. There's no growth without the trial. In fact, every single verse in the Bible where a New Testament author is explaining, like, you need to rejoice in your pain or rejoice in your suffering, Uh, what they immediately do is they give you a list of reasons or a list of characteristics that that thing is going to produce in your life. Uh, They're not just all masochists who enjoy pain for the sake of it. Uh, Romans 5, 3 to 5. We rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to you, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Uh, James 1, 2 to 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And so let, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, and then 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Uh, we are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. That again, church, God would love you enough that he would let you go through the trials of this life in order that he might chisel away everything in you, that doesn't look like Jesus. See, what if the reason you're going through the pain you're going through right now is not so that Christ can bring you out of it, 
and so that he can bring you through it stronger. What if when you're crying out to God, deliver me from this trial, God is turning to you and he's saying, I'm growing you through it. And again, not, that, not saying that God is causing the pain in your life, but church, he is using it. That, that if God can use the most painful moment in all of human history, when, when Jesus hung up upon a cross and it looked like the enemy had won and all hope was lost, if God can take that, that moment of utter despair and, and use it for, for the good of all creation and his glory, then church, do you not think that God can take your brokenness, your pain, your suffering, your hardship, and redeem that moment? for your good and his glory. You see, church, when you understand the purpose of pain that God has allowed in your life, it changes how you respond to suffering. And that's how Paul goes through this immense suffering. And he gets up and he just goes right back into it. So verse 21, when they had, re- when they had, um, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples... They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. All right, so so what's happening here is um, the mission trip's done. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, they've gotten as far as they want to get, and now they're on their way back home. Uh, Instead of of just making like a beeline for their um, sending church of Antioch, what they do is they retrace their steps uh, and they go back and they visit every single town and city that they visited on their way out. And the reason they're doing that is because uh, they want to encourage all the disciples they've already made. They want to go to those churches and say, hey, how are you doing? How, how are you growing in your faith? Let, let's encourage you. And you know what Paul uses as a means of encouraging them? How much he suffered. That he turns to these fledgling Christians and he's like, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. But see, church, how you suffer is not just about you. That you are not walking this, war, uh, this, uh, this Christian life in isolation. That honestly, there are people in this community that need to see it's possible to go through the storms of this life and still praise God. That there's people in your small group and in your immediate vicinity that they need to see that you can go through through hardship and pain and suffering, and not only will it not destroy you, but you'll actually come out of it stronger. That there are brothers and sisters in Christ who still need to know that when this world feels like it is falling apart around them, God is still good. And somehow, even though it doesn't feel like it in the moment, He is working it for your good and for His glory. And so can I just say, that is why we do such a disservice to our brothers and our sisters in Christ when we act like everything is, is perfect in our life. When we just say, yeah, no, for the moment I gave my life to Jesus, um, all my addictions stopped, all my sin habits stopped, and, and everything was up and to the right. It was cruisy from that moment on. Because honestly, it's not. And, and what happens, is, especially for immature, like new Christians, uh, they see that, and they go, oh, if I give my life to Jesus, then everything's easy. Everything will be fine from that moment on. And, and then, then they go through the dark night of the soul and their faith crumbles because they've been promised that Jesus would give them cash and prizes and instead they got suffering. But church, it, it does something to the, to the faith of others 
when we take off that mask and say, you know what, life is hard and I'm struggling and, and things are not always easy and they don't always make sense to me, but God is still good and still will I praise him. Uh, when we join in with Job and say, though God slay me, yet will I still praise him. The church, the body of Christ needs to be encouraged again and again and again that it is through many tribulations that we will enter the kingdom of God. And so that's what Paul's doing here. Uh, all right, verse 23, and um, the band can come up as we start landing this off tonight. Uh, verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. Uh, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, so this is just the, the journey home, they went to uh, Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, which is their sending church, uh, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the, the church together, so they, they come home, they're, they're back in their home church, and they, they bring the whole congregation in. Uh, and what they do is they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Now, the first thing Paul and Barnabas do when they, when they come home is they bring their church together and they say, guys, it was worth it. They, they don't bring up how, how difficult it was. They don't bring up the time that things didn't make sense to them and they got run out of town. They don't bring up the, the, the moment where people started sacrificing animals to them. They just get home. They're like, guys, it was worth it. Because God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. See, church, one day you will breathe your last in this life and your first in eternity. And, and I promise you, regardless of what you go through in this life, regardless of how much suffering and pain you experience, regardless of how difficult uh, th this walk may be, I promise you, you will say the exact same thing. That you'll look back at what you went through and you're like, it was worth it. That there won't be a single soul in heaven that, that will look back and, and lament on everything they went through. That we'll all join in with Paul and say it was a light and momentary affliction and it prepared us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Um, and I'll finish with this. There's this, um, this book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Uh, and it's sort of this, this analogy for, for what heaven is, is sort of going to look like, and it's his way of explaining it. Uh, and towards the end of, this book, of the book, there's this moment uh, where this man is standing at the gate of heaven and he's talking to an angel. And the angel's explaining how, in light of eternity, all our sufferings become worth it. And this is what he says. Son... You cannot in your present state understand eternity. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of their present suffering, no future bliss could ever make up for it. Not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And the process begins even before death. For the good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. And that is why the blessed will always say, we have never lived anywhere except for in heaven. The church, there is purpose in our pain. And again, if you're in a place of suffering and hardship tonight, and all of that was just words over you, then 
Let us comfort you. Let us come alongside you and support you. But the truth of the matter is God has a plan even for our pain. That He uses it to refine us. He uses it to grow us. He uses it to chisel away the parts of us that that, that look like this world and, and don't look like Jesus. That He uses it to make us into the people He has made us to be. That church, ultimately, when wielded in the hands of a loving God, all the suffering in this life, it is well worth. So Lord, I just thank you that you are good enough and big enough that regardless of who is causing the pain and suffering in our life, regardless of where it comes from, you are good enough to take a hold of that and redeem it that it might be for our good and for your glory. Lord, we thank you that you are with us in the trials of this life that you are not distant, you are not far, but you are closer than the air we breathe. And that you comfort us in our affliction and you are close to us when we are hurt. And Lord, right now, I, I just pray that, that you would begin to open our eyes just a little bit, that we may look back at the things we have walked through and we would begin to see just a glimmer of what you were doing in that season. Just a glimmer of how you were redeeming that moment as painful as it was for for our transformation into your likeness. And God, I I pray for those who are suffering the things of this life right now in in their walk with you. God, that you would use these moments to grow us into everything you have made us to be. And Lord, at the same time, I do pray for rescue. That that you would save us through our trials. But Lord, we praise you and we glorify you and we say you are good even when it hurts. And we pray this all in the good, strong name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.